You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. You're never going to be 100% secure. You're never going to be the best. And so that's okay. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Cyberwire's Hacking Humans podcast, where each week we look behind the social engineering scams, phishing schemes, and criminal exploits that are making headlines and taking a heavy toll on organizations around the world. I'm Dave Bittner from the Cyberwire, and joining me is Joe Kerrigan from the Johns Hopkins University Information Security Institute. Hello, Joe. Hi, Dave. We've got some good stories to share this week, and later in the show, Carol Terrio returns. She's got an interview with Zoe Rose, who shares her experience as an ethical hacker. And we are back. Joe, I'm going to start this week's show with some follow-up. Okay. We got some follow-up from a listener who prefers to remain anonymous, so we'll respect that. Okay. But uh, he wrote us and he said, in regards to the belief that if there's a warrant for your arrest, you won't get notification in advance, I would simply like to point out some information as it relates to the federal system in which there are instances when it is in fact possible that you might get some advance notice of an arrest warrant situation. Really? There are scenarios in the federal system where the local U.S. Marshal will mail out what is called a notice before arrest. In locations where there is a lot of federal property and jurisdiction, like the D.C. area, that's where you and I live, (laughs) there are many, many of these notices of arrest received by the local U.S. Marshals. They are almost always for very minor federal offenses, such as swimming in an unauthorized area, speeding on the GW Parkway, possession of an alcoholic beverage, driving an unregistered vehicle on federal property, and so on. At the time the person is given a ticket, a notice to appear, the officer may enter information on the ticket that specifically requires a court appearance, and it may even provide a specific date, time, and location of said appearance. A failure to appear by an individual at the designated date, time, and location can result in the clerk of the court automatically issuing what is called a notice before arrest. This multiple-form document called Notice Before Arrest is forwarded to the local U.S. Marshal's office attached to an actual copy of the original arrest warrant. As a practical matter, nobody is ever going to come out and arrest you for that particular violation. The arrest warrant is not entered into any wanted person's database. However, when I was running a local U.S. Marshal's office inundated by these notices before arrest that were required to maintain on file, I developed a form letter on the U.S. Marshal letterhead that I called Final Notice Before Arrest. In this letter, I made the statement that the list of open arrest warrants has now made it to your case and a team of deputy U.S. Marshals will be dispatched to apprehend you. The response of people showing up at the U.S. Magistrate's Court was stunning, so much that it almost overwhelmed the court system and I was ordered to stop. <laughs> so, so in other words, he's social engineering compliance with the law? Or yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yes. So in short, getting a notice before arrest in the mail is something that actually happens in the federal system, and receiving a phone call was not entirely impossible to have happen either. So there you go, Joe. Okay, um, so okay, so the U.S. Marshals leave may it to the notify feds. you before you arrest if you speed on the GW you parkway repeatedly and don't show up for court. Okay, so there is an exception to this. Yeah, rule. yeah. But oh, generally just, speaking, if, yes. they're, if they're coming to get you, they're not calling. You. Seems like if they're coming to get you for something serious, <laughs> right? It seems like in this case they're still not coming to get you. But I think he's pointing out that this is a thing. Right, it is possible to be notified. It's sort of um, I don't know. It's a, sort of a technicality, I guess, because it's a notice before arrest. But he makes the point nobody's coming to arrest you. Right. It seems like maybe a side effect of some of the particularities of the federal system and the type of paperwork that they do, and so on and so forth. But uh, but you know, we can always count on our listeners to point out when we've made mistakes, no matter how minor they might 
might be. <laughs> <laughs> right? <laughs> right. Anyway, we appreciate this listener writing in. Yes, thank and, you. Uh, it's uh, enlightening, yeah, as always. Yeah, it's a good one. Yep. All right. I'm going to kick things off in terms of stories this week. Mine is a quick one. It comes from uh, Popular Science, and this is about uh, scammers who've been shifting their spamming from email to your calendar. I've heard of this. I think, yes. Did we talk about this earlier? Uh, we may have, but it seems as though it's on the increase. And one of the things they point out in this article is that uh, the spammers tend to shift around. As, okay. as one thing gets shut down, they shift to other things. Sure. They move around. So what this is doing is this is taking advantage of a feature of <laughs> Gmail. A feature, yes. <laughs> which uh, allows Gmail to automatically look through your emails. And if, if it sees something that looks like a date, an appointment, or someone requesting an appointment, it will automatically populate your calendar with the information from that email. Right. And I think you can actually send a calendar invite. You can. And, and Gmail will put it on your calendar, on your it, Google Calendar. Right, right. And so the spammers are taking advantage of this by basically putting calendar invites within an email that says things like, this app made $1,200 in just two hours, you right. know, <laughs> like that sort of thing. So what happens is you go to look at your calendar and lo and behold, there are all of these spammy messages all over your calendar. Right. So it's sort of a, finding a way to get your attention where most spam these days, as we've talked about, just goes right into the spam folder because right. they've gotten so good at it. They've worked around the spam filters and now they're now you're going to have to put a spam filter on your calendar. <laughs> right, right. Well, and, and this functionality is useful because, for example, right. if I sent you a, a lunch invitation, mm -hmm. said, hey, Joe, how'd you like to get together for lunch next week? And it, it could automatically pop up on your calendar right. and remind you that we were getting together for lunch. So that's not a bad thing. But if you're getting these spammy things, it's pretty easy to go into your Gmail settings and disable this functionality or only show calendar events that you have agreed to attend. Yeah, that you've, you've clicked, yes, I'm going. Right. Not a big deal, but I, I put this one in the nuisance category. Yeah, yeah. Well, nuisances add up, you know. Right. It's like you say, all these little microaggressions that just increase our stress on a daily basis. And this is using a feature to get around these filters to... Just get a stupid message that we don't want to receive in front of our face. Right. And I, I don't know about you, but I also think of my calendar as being somewhat more personal than my email inbox. So I think yeah. having something pop up in there randomly is a little... Yeah. more disconcerting. Than because of what makes you wonder, can they see what's on my calendar? Who am I sharing my calendar with? Right. And all right, that stuff. Right. Exactly. It's irritating. Exactly. So we'll have a link to that story in the show notes. Uh, Joe, what do you have for us this week? I have a very interesting story this week, Dave. There's mm. an insurance company called Euler Hermes Group, and they apparently sell cybersecurity insurance. And one of their policyholders, and they haven't said who, filed a claim for 220,000 euros. That's about uh, $243,000 in American money. Hmm. And here's what happened. The CEO of a UK-based energy company got a phone call from his boss, who is the CEO of the parent company in Germany. And the caller asked him to send funds to a Hungarian supplier. And of course, the caller says, this is urgent and I need you to pay this bill within the hour. Rudiger Kirsch is a fraud expert from Euler Hermes. And he says the attackers in this instance appear to have used AI software to successfully mimic the German executive's voice by phone, which is interesting. The UK CEO recognized his boss's slight German accent and the melody of his voice on the phone, which is impressive if this is in fact an AI impersonating him. 
And several officials said the voice spoofing attack in Europe is the first cybercrime they've heard of in which criminals clearly drew on artificial intelligence. Euler Hermes hasn't dealt with any other claims seeking to recover losses from some AI attack, according to Mr. Kirsch. But the attackers called three times. Mm-hmm. Okay, the first time they called was for the initial transfer. The second time after the transfer had happened, they called the UK CEO again and said, we're going to be sending you another wire transfer to cover the funds you just transferred out. Then they called a third time. Guess why? Hmm. To ask for another transfer. (laughs) To get more money. Right. They got a live one and they're going to go after it. Yeah. But this time the the CEO notices the phone number is an Austrian phone number, not a German phone number. Hmm. And the wire transfer that was promised has not yet arrived. And those things generally happen pretty fast. So he gets suspicious and he doesn't make the second payment. All right. Good for him. Yep. Now, Kirsch from Oil Hermes was saying that he thinks the attackers used commercial voice generating software to carry out the attack. And he even went so far as to record his own voice using one such product and said it reproduced a very real version of his voice. Hmm. Okay. Now, Bobby Filer is the director of data science at a cybersecurity company called Endgame. And he says there are a few software companies out there who offer these kind of services that can quickly impersonate voices. Yeah. And you don't have to be a PhD in mathematics to use this, right? It just works. It's very simple. There's another tactic that hackers demonstrated at uh, Black Hat last year where they took hours and hours of voice recordings and and patched them together into a believable conversation with just the samples. So they're not actually impersonating it. They're just using the voice samples. And this is an old prank, right? right. I mean, I remember hearing things. They'd take uh, recordings of Arnold Schwarzenegger from some of his movies. Yes, yeah. And yeah. they'd call up someone and, and just have a soundboard and they'd use those samples. And Radio make, shows used to do this all the time. Yeah, do funny conversations that way. Yep. Filer says you can't go around being silent all the time. Uh, you're going to run into situations where you expose the information that you never thought could be used against you. And I was telling you before we recorded this show that I was talking with my dad about this. And he goes, do you ever worry that your voice is going to be impersonated because you do these podcasts? And mm-hmm. I, I said, yeah, I do worry about it. Hmm. It's one of the things that concerns me. I don't know how much I worry about it, but it is something that has bugged me in the back of my mind. Hmm. So a couple solutions here. I don't just like to present problems and go, what are we going to do? Here's <laughs> here's what you can do. Corporate policy is is probably the best solution for this, right? When you get a call for an urgent wire transfer that needs to happen, you need to have some kind of, like we talked about before, a physical two-factor. Maybe, okay, that's fine. I'll make that transfer, but I'm going to call you back to continue this discussion, Mm -hmm. right? And that has to come from the top down, I think. If the German CEO in this company would have said, if I ever call you or somebody higher up ever calls you to ask for a wire transfer, you call them back to validate that. Then it would have been his policy. And of course, he shouldn't be opposed to that policy. Right. And somebody who is opposed to that policy is probably a fraudster. Lots of voice over IP vendors have phone certificates that uh, will authenticate a caller. Hmm. Uh, But I don't know how that works if somebody's calling from their own cell phone or mobile device. Right. Phil Zimmerman has also developed something called Z-Phone that's out there. That's kind of a distributed system that doesn't rely on public key infrastructure. Okay. In the future, there's going to be some things that are going to make this a lot less probable. Number one is that cybersecurity companies have developed products that can detect these voices when Hmm. they're faked. And because most of our phones are essentially voice over IP phones in, in businesses, it's technically possible to have that software analyze the voice data as it's going across and then alert the user when it detects a voice it thinks is faked. Hmm. In the U.S., the telecom industry is working at the behest of the Federal Communications Commission to develop a standard 
for authenticated caller ID that's called Stirred Shaken. Yeah. Got to come up with a clever acronym. Right. <laughs> uh, it's in development and testing right now. I think AT&T and Comcast have tested it to see if it works. What do you think, Dave? This is interesting. I am skeptical. Are I have you? to Yes. Okay. I am very skeptical of this story. As you know, Joe, and as our listeners know, I am a master of dialects. Yes, you are. <laughs> and, uh, and so to me... This whole notion of them using AI to generate uh, the German accent of the boss, I, I just don't buy it. There's no evidence of that other than them saying this is probably what happened. Right. Instead of them just getting somebody who was a decent mimic yep. and calling up the person and saying, you know, I need you to transfer the money by the morning. Hogan. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> this reminds me of, for example, a bank or someone is is hacked. Right. And they lose information. Mm -hmm. The first thing they tend to say is, well, it must have been a nation state. Right. It had to have been a nation state. So because of that, there's nothing we could do. <laughs> right. As opposed to, it was probably Randy in his parents' basement who yeah. had too much time on his hands. Some script kitty penetrated our network and we don't want you to know that. Right, exactly. This rings of that sort of thing where, well, it was, what could this person have done? It was AI. It was overwhelmingly convincing and there's no possible way he could have defended against it. The easiest thing to do would be just get somebody who's a fairly decent mimic, put them on a intentionally noisy phone line and just talk them through it. Social engineer them. I, I don't think the AI stuff would be necessary. Yeah, I, I you might be right. The only bit of skepticism I have from this is that the attackers have no way of knowing what the person is going to ask. So in order to respond to him quickly, they have to have a whole mess of pre-canned things like the soundboard like you were talking about earlier. Right. Or they have to type the speech in. And I think that would create a noticeable lag. Yes. In time. Yes. Uh, even if you had a very quick typist. Yes. None of the stories I've seen on this provide any evidence that it was an AI-based system other than someone saying it was an AI-based system. Yeah, there's, the person, there's, no, there's no recordings. The person saying it's an AI-based system is the person from the insurance company, and the insurance company paid the claim. Yes. They reimbursed their policyholder. Right. And, and this could be coverage for them as well. Hmm. It's less embarrassing for them to say, we covered this if it was an overwhelming force rather than, you know, they got, you know, Siegfried, who has a good German accent, right. to just talk them through it. Maybe it so, was you, Dave. It could have been. It could, <laughs> I'm moonlighting on the side. Right. As a, yeah. Maybe so, you know too much here. I want to know more. I, I, I'm right. not willing to just say that, oh, of course it was AI. There's no evidence here. My skeptical nature uh, has been triggered and it, it's interesting. I think it's possible. I don't think we're there yet. I th it's just be harder to do it with AI than it would to just have somebody who's a good mimic. All right. Well, it's an interesting story. It certainly has been making the rounds. In my mind, this is more beware of what may come versus this is definitely what happened in this case. Like I said, I'm, I'm skeptical. Could have been this, but I'm not so sure. You make good points, Dave. Well, thank you. <laughs> Time to move on <laughs> to our catch of the day. Joe, our catch of the day this week comes from a listener named Marion, mm -hmm. and she sent us a series of uh, messages she got via email, and it goes like this. I know you are a pedophile. Yeah, I know you are a pedophile. Actually, I know way more about you than you think. I am a computer scientist with affiliation with the Anonymous Group. 
few months ago, you downloaded an application. That application had a special code implanted purposely. Since the moment you installed it, your device started to act like a remote desktop I was able to access any time. The program allowed me to access your desktop, your cameras, your files, passwords, and contact lists. I also know where you live and where you work. I was observing you for quite some time, and what I have collected here is overwhelming. I know about your sexual preferences and your interest in young bodies. I have secured four video files showing your preferences. Glued together, it's a pretty overwhelming evidence that you are a pedophile. I'm not here to judge the morality of your sexual preferences. I'm here to make money. Because I know you are a wealthy person and that you do care about your reputation, I'm willing to give you a chance to atone and I will leave you alone. You must fund a special address of Bitcoin. Otherwise, I'm going to send these video files to your family members, friends, and your work buddies. Joe, this is a variation on one that we've covered here before. Right. Which is basically the exact same thing, except instead of accusing the person of being a pedophile, they just say they caught you watching porn. Right. It's a combination of the two sextortions we've talked about before. Right. right. Now, to me, this is really stupid because... <laughs> The, the subset of people who are actually pedophiles, right? I'm guessing, I'm hoping, and <laughs> that is, is quite low. Right, right. Yeah. So the vast majority of people who may receive this are going to be like, what? I'm not a pedophile. Right. No, I, this is ridiculous. Yeah. No, I, I'm not a pedophile. This must be a scam. Moving on. Right. So, ah, but when you do hit that one guy that is a pedophile. Yeah, jackpot. Right. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. So, so it's always, it's a numbers game, I suppose. Yes. But uh, I don't know. What, He's what asking you, for five grand. And, uh, you know, I think if he, if he hits the right person, he'll yeah. get five grand. I guess so. It, it seems like if you got a person to respond to this, that's someone you could also go back to time and time sure. again. I would hazard to say that someone who actually is a pedophile, in, in addition to being a horrible person, ha probably has a pretty guilty conscience and uh, might respond to this sort of thing. But it, it just seems like a low return. But uh, Yeah, spam know. is cheap, Dave. Yeah, you're right. You're right. It is. Well, that's our catch of the day. Thanks to Marion for sending it in. Joe, coming up next, Carol Terrio returns, and she is going to be speaking with Zoe Rose, who's going to share information about what she does as an ethical hacker. Joe, Carol Terrio is back, and she is speaking with Zoe Rose, who is an ethical hacker, and she's going to share her story about what goes into that particular line of work. Here's Carol. Ethical hackers. The first thing that comes to my mind is a person or group that tricks intended targets into falling for a phishing attack. And these can be sneaky, designed to completely dupe the target into clicking on a dangerous link. Now, of course, the aim of the typical ethical hacker is good. But let's be honest. This kind of test, especially when sprung on a bunch of unsuspecting employees, risks eroding trust and openness within the company. You might not be as comfortable with your boss if you know that the ethical hacker told him or her that you were duped and clicked on the link. So it was wonderfully refreshing to hear Zoe Rose's take on this profession. Zoe is an ethical hacker based in the UK. And not only does she explain her perspective on how to onboard computer users into being safer online, she does this in a positive, open and inclusive fashion. Check it out. And forgive the rasp in my voice, I was at the tail end of a cold when we chatted. 
So Zoe, thank you so much for coming on Hacking Humans. I thought you'd be really well-placed to help us understand exactly what an ethical hacker is. Good morning, Carol, and thank you for inviting me. I tend to explain it as a mindset, because a lot of people have this assumption that an ethical hacker is somebody that is mythical, almost magic, that they can kind of look at a device and just break it in their mind before anything's happened. The reality is, you know, a lot of hacks or breaches and that, they're actually quite unsophisticated. Um, they're generally looking at something not for what it's meant to do, but what they can make it do for them. And so it's like a way of looking at something to be used for their own personal benefit versus traditionally what it's meant to do. When it comes to an ethical hacker, it's somebody that does that with the motivation of education, further securing and spreading knowledge. Right. So teaching people that use all this stuff, all these devices to be better online so that they're less easily targeted. Would that be fair? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's exactly it. It's really just an ethical hacker you could think of as a teacher, just maybe less of a traditional teacher, more of a <laughs> unique baby. <laughs> so how is it then that you as an ethical hacker teach? So I'm guessing you get booked for events and talk to groups, that sort of thing? Yeah, there's a variety of things. Participating in a phishing simulation or, you know, USB drop or physical pen test or, you know, you break into something, break something in the environment, and then you present the findings back to the, could be the board, it could be the general users or overall consumers, and then you talk about the positives. So you're not just saying, oh, you failed, you're saying this happened and this is how you can protect yourself in the future. And these are the people that actually successfully uh, were able to recognize this incident or recognize that it was something that shouldn't have happened. And the reason that whole positive point of view, that is so vital, is because if you want people to do nothing, you talk about the negatives and you scare them. But if you want them to actually take action, that's when you talk about the positive and reinforce that they can do it and empower them. So if I, if I were a customer calling you up and I said, look, I'm worried about my employees not being educated enough on phishing attacks, either in spotting them or how to manage them. Can you help us? Yeah, I could do that. The example I tend to use is uh, when I'm training is I talk about how you could fish me, for example. And so you look on my social media, you look on my LinkedIn and the thing that you see consistently across all of that is ferrets. So if you want to fish me, you can send me something about ferrets or ferret pictures. And even though I, I know it's a phishing email, I might still click on it. Because the temptation is too great because your love is for ferrets is exactly. so is so huge. <laughs> <laughs> and then another thing I might do, like sometimes it is a simple phishing campaign and then presenting the findings back. Quite often, it's actually, they've already done the phishing campaign because that's actually quite popular at the moment. Right. And, and they're, they're, for some reason, they're not finding any traction. They're not seeing it make any difference. And so when I come in, I might run a phishing campaign, but I might also just go through the existing campaigns they've done and look at how they're measuring their metrics how they're sharing the knowledge into the organization, specifically how they're messaging it, you know, how they're talking about it, how they're trying to approach training. And it doesn't sound as sexy as the whole hacking bit, 
but it can be, if not as effective, but more effective. And it's simply down to the way, the language that we use and the way we're presenting it. I don't think I've ever thought about that before. So what, what I'm hearing here is companies can effectively run their own phishing campaigns because they can do it out of a box or use third-party service or use you, doesn't matter. But then when they get those results, they don't necessarily know how to address the findings. It's almost like it needs an expert brain that can go through it and go, oh, okay, I can see some patterns here in behavior. And I know the best ways to onboard those people into a new way of thinking, a safer way of thinking. Definitely. Um, I've found that the biggest thing is because I understand how to, I guess, manipulate or influence a consumer to clicking my links or downloading a document, et cetera, et cetera, I can understand how to correct that behavior. You know, I, I focus in on these key human behaviors and I look at how to change them. Unfortunately, a lot of times phishing is looked at, well, let's trick the users, let's, let's manipulate them and point out how they're failing versus saying, well, actually, let's announce that we're going to have a phishing campaign so that people are already aware and they know they should actively be looking. Or let's actually make it a simple phishing email and, you know, kind of build their confidence and their ability to address it. Mm. We're all a little bit nervous about being hacked, right, or being attacked. So what are like some easy tips to make us a little bit less vulnerable than the rest of those? <laughs> yeah, of course. I mean, when it comes to personal security, the top things I say is, you know, the first one being aware or thinking about what data you're putting out there, thinking about the accounts that you have that maybe you're not using or you are using, but you're not really sure if it's as secure as possible. So you're thinking about, okay, well, what data am I putting out there? What accounts can I limit? You know, are they beneficial? And if they are, okay, how can I secure it further? But if they're not, can I get rid of them? And most importantly, whilst everybody thinks that cybersecurity, you know, the, the sexiest controls are actually gonna make the difference, the reality is keeping your apps and your devices up to date is actually the most effective thing that you can do because those patches, those updates that are being released are fixing issues or vulnerabilities that the vendor or someone else has disclosed to the vendor and solving that before it becomes an issue. Mm. You know, when it comes to multi-factor authentication, a lot of people, for some reason, there's this like, either it has to be the best solution or not do it at all. And I mean things like using a authentication token or using a app generator. And people are like, oh, if you don't use that, don't bother with multi-factor. Whereas people that use SMS, for example, I mean, that's a good step. Even if it's not the perfect solution, maybe a malicious hacker has your email and password, but, you know, they don't have your multi-factor token and that code that you put in. And therefore, you know, they can get part of the way, but they can't get all the way. And it takes additional work to be able to break in where somebody that doesn't have that is going to be an easier target. And potentially they might just not bother with you. Yeah. So just being better than everybody else, even a bit better, it really lowers your, you know, your risk profile or your risk exposure, mm -hmm, doesn't definitely. it? Definitely. I mean, you're never going to be 100% secure. You're never going to be the best. And so that's okay. I mean, the reality is just do what works for you because if it's, if it's not the best solution in the world, but it works for you and you can maintain that, it's going to be way more effective than trying to put on, you know, the best 
controls the most expensive solutions that you can't maintain. What did I tell you? Isn't this a much smarter approach to getting people to take in cybersecurity advice? Work with them to show them what they need to do to be safer. Genius. Learn more about Zoe at rosesec.com. This was Carol Terrio for Hacking Humans. All right, interesting interview. Yeah, I like I like listening to Zoe Rose when she's yeah, on. I have to say that uh, again, as a master of dialects, that I find myself uh, a bit smitten by Zoe's uh, accent. <laughs> uh, I could listen to her read the phone book and just be perfectly content. Right. First thing she says off the bat: hacking is a mindset, and that's true regardless of your technical skills. I've known people with very low technical skills who have been able to manipulate systems mm. very well. It's just about how you make something work to your advantage. Yeah, it's a good point. Another thing she talks about is your penetration test report has to have two areas in order for it to be beneficial. What you did right and what works and where you can improve. That may sound like an obvious statement, but you know, companies spend a lot of money on cybersecurity products. If a penetration tester comes in and says, here's all the things that stopped me. And if you didn't have these things in place, then I would have gotten in a lot easier. That lets the board know or the CEO know or, or the people, the decision makers know, hey, these things are effective. Right. Money right. well spent. Money well mm -hmm. spent. Mm -hmm. And where you can improve is also very important. It's, I wouldn't couch it in, you know, what you did wrong. You know, I wouldn't say it that way. I'd say, here's where you can get better. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. Because yeah. security is a continuum, at least in my opinion, I view it as this. I know a lot of people are going to say, no, it's either secure, it's not secure. But I view it as a continuum. You can do something that's more secure or you can do something that's less secure. Mm -hmm. So here's how you can move in the... Uh, more secure direction. Zoe knows where her vulnerabilities are, that she has a weakness for ferrets, <laughs> which is important to know about yourself. Right. right? For me, it's chickens. Uh, okay. I, I don't know. I just you love, love chickens. You love chickens. They do. Good. I love All them right. and they're awesome. I remember hearing a story about a CEO who was uh, convinced to click because he was a car collector. Ah, and the bad guys knew this and they sent him some information that said, hey, we've started up a new car show right near you. And here's all the information on that car show. Click through. And the CEO was like, well, that's for me. Right. Exactly. <laughs> you know, right. right. Exactly. So it could be anything. They, it, and it doesn't take much to figure out what you're into besides the stuff you do at work. That's right. Although chickens is, is news to me. Oh, but, you didn't uh, know about my affinity for chickens. Well, that's good. I'm glad. But now everybody who listens to this show is going to start sending me chicken links. Right. You, <laughs> Joe, check you, out and, uh, you and Gonzo from The Muppet Show. Right. <laughs> you are not the first person to make that observation. All right. <laughs> Doing a phishing test is just the first step mm -hmm. and you need to modify the behavior. And part of the behavior modification is as an individual, you need to know and be aware of what your online footprint looks like. Mm -hmm. And then Zoe talks about reducing that footprint or your attack surface, right? Like maybe I have to unjoin that chicken group on Facebook. Right. <laughs> um, also, she says, again, keep your software up to date. That's very important. It's, it eliminates a lot of vulnerabilities that are out there. Yeah. Keep yourself protected. Multi-factor authentication. And I really, really, really appreciate what Zoe said about multi-factor and SMS. If SMS is all you have, use it. Right. Uh, way better than it's nothing. Way better than nothing. Exactly. Right. It's no, it's not perfect. It's that old saying about don't let the perfect be the enemy of the good exactly. or something, something yeah, along those good, lines. That, yeah. yeah. Don't let the perfect be the enemy of the good is exactly right. Yeah. There is no perfect multi-factor authentication. 
right? Mm-hmm. Even a YubiKey, it's vulnerable to something depending on how much work an attacker is willing to put in and how criminally physical they're willing to get. Right. right? <laughs> you hit you over the head with a wrench until you and give take up your, your YubiKey. Right. right. <laughs> until you give up your YubiKey and <laughs> right. then they're into your accounts. Yeah. <laughs> yes. That's less likely. And yes, a YubiKey is more secure than SMS, but yeah. it's still not a perfect system and you should not delude yourself into thinking that. All right. Well, uh, again, thanks to Carol Terrio and thanks to Zoe Rose for joining us. Always a pleasure to have both of them on the show. Thanks to the Johns Hopkins University Information Security Institute for their participation. You can learn more at isi.jhu.edu. The Hacking Humans podcast is proudly produced in Maryland at the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. Our coordinating producer is Jennifer Iben. Our editor is John Petrick. Technical editor is Chris Russell. Our staff writer is Tim Nodar. Our executive editor is Peter Kilpie. I'm Dave Bittner. And I'm Joe Kerrigan. Thanks for listening. 